This podcast contains swear words. Well, hello, and welcome to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne, a podcast about art making, creativity, not giving up, living well in the process, and everything in between. I am coming from the perspective of performing artist, but the issues, ideas, responses, etc. discussed here apply to all of us. Whether you consider yourself an artist or not, life is a creative act. And before we get into our interview, as usual, rate, review, share, please. Write a review. How hard could that be? Share it on social media. Tell your friend, hey, I've been listening to this podcast. It's really interesting. It's exposed me to all these artists I didn't know about or didn't know as much about. It's very exciting. And if you have the inclination to donate, it really, really, really does help even a little bit. It goes a long way. You can go to terrashyan.com and upper right-hand corner of that website, click the donate button. It takes you right there. Easy. And we will link in the show notes. Okay, so my interview with Daisy Thompson. I met Daisy, let's see, about five or six years ago when she was finishing her MFA at SFU. That does not stand for a master of fuck all at some fucking university. Uh, Masters of Fine Arts from Simon Fraser University. She is now in deep with the end in sight of her PhD. Daisy is thoughtful, imaginative, caring, amazing, so smart, so smart. Her PhD centers around caregiving, choreography. So we talk about all kinds of super interesting things that affect us. And sometimes we don't realize how much these ideas about caring for ourselves and caring for others really do matter when it comes to making art. Welcome Daisy Thompson to Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne. Now you and I have talked shit on more than one occasion. I met you when you were, I think you weren't pregnant with your second child yet and you were working on your master's degree. And then I was like, ooh, super smart. Now, two children... PhD candidate mm. and amazing practicing dance artist, educator, choreographer, and fashionista. I'm just going to say that. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my first question for you is because in my mind, I'm often like, oh, I should have gone to grad school. Oops. You know, there's a certain point and a certain age, I think, maybe in our milieu when that is expected. But how did you get to where you are right now, which is PhD candidate? Yeah, it definitely wasn't on my early adult agenda at all. And thanks for saying all those really lovely things about me. And I'm going to take them because I'm in a phase in my life where I'm affirming and I like being affirmed by others. And I'm not going to be meek and hide behind. I'm going to take it and say, yes, that's what I am. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, a bit of a surprise because I left school at 15, didn't do my exams 
back in those days, you could kind of get away with it. So in the UK, at that time, it was called GCSEs, your final year exams, but I didn't do those. And then I went into the world and I was waitressing and then managing restaurants and doing all these things. Then I was in this really great group of friends who were all artists, musicians, visual artists. There's no dancers or anything, but I was really, I was really into dance. Like whenever I went to nightclubs or anywhere where there's music parties, I was like the one alone on the dance floor, just all night. You didn't see me again. And so I thought, oh, I just want to leave. I feel like I want to pursue this passion that I had so then I started dance training but just very basic foundation course and then I went to a I forgot what it's called a diploma I think and then I went into a degree and the degree I did was just pure dance training I think we did two sort of academic essays in the whole three-year program and I left that and I pursued a bit of professional dance kind of roles And then the reason I I was thinking of doing a master's in the UK, because I'm a bit of a nerd and I just enjoy reading and I do enjoy reading theory as well as fiction or autobiographies. I think it was the beginning of when I really realized that I am kind of, which I think we all are, but this kind of perpetual knowledge seeker. So I was thinking of doing a master's and then I met my children's dad and he was coming to Canada and I needed a way to get into Canada with him because he wanted to come for a little while. And I found Simon Fraser University, the School for Contemporary Arts. So I had a bit of a back and forth with Rob Kitsos there. They do an MFA program and I applied and I got in. And so we came over here and I did that for two years. And I remember in my first year sitting in one of the seminars and there was about 10 people in my cohort I think I may have been the only dancer. There was a couple of theatre students, a couple of film maybe, and then the rest for visual arts. And I think traditionally visual arts have a very academic framing in their training. And I remember sort of sitting there and being, you know, that word imposter syndrome, thinking I shouldn't be here. I can't talk this language. I just know dance language. That's it. And I, I found it very difficult to translate the kind of theoretical ideas and the dance practice ideas and to sort of get it across anyway I persisted got through my stomach ache from being so nervous about not being intelligent and then somehow got through the MFA and then when I finished the MFA yeah I had one baby then and mothered in that early year mm-hmm. in that first year a little bit of freelance stuff and then I was thinking still hadn't quenched my thirst for the sort of theory I was just getting my teeth into it just understanding how much sort of value I have as a dancer within this academic setting and sort of feeling more empowered by it and also at the same time feeling a little bit hadn't quite made an impression in Vancouver dancing yet you know I was sort of very much in my MFA and meeting people but you know you move somewhere else and you kind of have to start again with your career and so I was a little bit in the middle place, not really knowing how to land. I didn't have the capacity to really go for it with my dance career practice. I still had this urge to read more and learn more. And so I just thought, I'll do a PhD. (laughs) I'll do a PhD. I can do a PhD. It's fine. Amazing. Um, And at first I was like, I can't do a PhD because I'm not academic. That was like 
the talk I was giving myself. But one of my supervisors, uh, Dr. Laura Marks, became a friend and I was speaking to her and she was like, you can, you can do it. Anyone can actually do a PhD. It's not what you think it is. She was really encouraging. And I thought, you know, this PhD gives me a framework to allow me to delve into the theory and the practice and be a parent and have that kind of framework as a grounding place and include any sort of community or professional, you know, dance work that I was doing. It brought everything together I am interested in. That's how I got to do the PhD. I mean, like I say, I was never grade A student or anything like that, but I just have this desire to know more. (laughs) And so, yeah, it landed in a PhD. Wow. (laughs) I think it's amazing and it's really inspiring because for dancers or young performance artists in general, but specifically for dancers to hear your story because there's so much in our culture and in our dance practice and the way we're educated that's kind of, we'll just be pretty and, you know, shut up and dance and look fantastic and not to be thinking and questioning and Yeah. You know, you say that the thirst for theory is such a good phrase. And I think of the idea of I'm not academic. What does that really mean? Yeah. And how sad it is really that we get those ideas in our heads. Yeah. But also how triumphant it is that you had folks around you and had whatever that internal drive. Yeah. Just like, I, I need to know more. Yeah. And I think in our sort of dance studios, coffees, workshops. There's a lot of dance that's where we talk a lot, where we're bringing these philosophical ideas in. There's so much knowledge, because that's what I think about academia. It's like knowledge creating or building or whatever. There's so much knowledge and it's much more embodied. And so we have so much to give to that. That is also on the surface level and in, and in some practices for sure and in some training, yeah, it's all that look pretty and this and that. But I think people outside of dance don't see all that underground research that happens. That for me, like when I'm reading all these really heavy texts and then when I kind of digest it for myself or someone tells me what it was about, <laughs> I say, oh, that's what we do. That's kind of what we do, <laughs> you know, so yeah. yeah, so it's happening and it's happening in all our dance spaces, in our creative spaces, in our meeting spaces and this and that, but it's just not kind of acknowledged. And I guess that sort of segues onto the value that dancers bring or practicing artists bring to the institution, because I realize a lot of the theory, which I love reading, is a lot of these crazy, intelligent people observing and thinking But there's so much of that can come out of the practice, out of the doing. And this practice is research, which is huge in these universities now, where there really are more and more. There's still a long way to go, but they really are valuing more the knowledge that comes out of practice. And I feel like it also changes the way that academia, like the writing from academia, it's Mm. more... I don't want to use the word accessible because sometimes the word accessible can come across as negative, as in it's easy. (laughs) You know, it's not that. It's about everyone having the opportunity to enter into gaining this information. And so I'm thinking about the writing and how writing is changing as well, coming out of practice. 
it's sort of these big ideas, but coming from process, which I find more digestible when I read that kind of work. I feel like I can relate it to being much better. Absolutely. You put that in such a understandable way, which is kind of what you're talking about too. So <laughs> it makes me think of my parents are visual artists who were full on in the university. Mm. And so I grew up kind of with this like, okay, what words do I have to learn to sound smarty, smart pants? Mm. And in university, I identified those professors where I peppered in the things. Mm. I think I understood a lot of them, but it just seemed a little bit like, you know, sleight of hand that I was doing. And it wasn't really connected with all the deep research I was doing in my practice as a choreographer and a dancer. Yeah. So it's so exciting that that, yeah. that chasm maybe is closing somewhat. I work a lot in theater yeah. as a choreographer. I don't see it yet mm. blending into those places. Mm. But I think it, it must be coming. Yeah, hopefully. I still don't see it in some dance spaces that I'm in as well, but I feel like it's getting more and more, you know, yeah. Can you talk about this idea of what is embodied knowledge? <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I think about embodied knowledge, I think about the lived experience of uh, a situation. And then out of that lived experience of a the situation, there's a description of it, but then there's the growth, the understanding, what happened, what was maybe an outcome of that. And I guess we could ask ourselves several questions, you know, what can we learn from embodied knowledge? What can we learn from lived experience that is going to help us change or expand those experiences? So negative experiences, what's the knowledge that came out of that? What are the outcomes of it? And what do we need to do to change it? Or even positively, just think about my personal life. Oh, I'm expanding on this. It, it all comes from like a lived experience of something. Just as an off the bat, thing I think I would describe it that way yeah and as a dance artist yeah there's something really interesting and profound about lived experience and just how much movement has happened in your body how much movement has been metabolized created tracked and repeated yeah so do you have ideas about that from that dance perspective yeah, I guess I, with thinking from dance, we can go in and we can talk about our lived experience outside of the studio and bring that in and sort of make that part of the creative process. But I also think of it from a feelings perspective as well, even feelings within like, you know, if we're doing somatic work, for example, we're working somatically and after we've finished a certain task, we feel into our body and we think about what's different or what's the same or thinking about how are you feeling now oh I feel more spacious or I feel this or that and so for me that's kind of a lived experience in terms of a present moment so then we have those feelings and and often I know even for myself as dancers we don't pay enough attention to our feelings which is embodied knowledge too. We feel these things, but most of us live in this 24-7, really fast-paced society that we can't quite catch up with those feelings or we don't acknowledge those feelings. And as we know, those feelings tell us something. If we don't listen to our feelings in the moment or as close to that moment, they get sort of trapped and then they come out as something, anxiety or an illness or something like that. So I feel like 
in terms of dealing with embodied knowledge in the studio, it's not just about the social that we bring in, but it's also about like these exercises that we, I say we, yeah, I talk from my practice and people, you know, colleagues and that we go through these exercises that get us to really tune in to feelings. And then we use that knowledge to then go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm, my brain's going in all different directions, but also just in terms of the culture of care to the culture of creation, because this is on my mind a lot as I'm heading into this really intense theater creation rehearsal. And for those folks who maybe don't know, in the theater world, the model is to work Tuesday to Sunday, 10 to 6 for a crazy number of weeks. And then you go into tech, which is usually 10 hours a day and then switch noon to 10 p.m. or something like that. Mm. So it's just on my mind. It's like, how do we care for ourselves and how do we care for the people that we need to care for? And what you're saying about caring for and just being aware of one's emotions. Yeah. It does seem like it's kind of new. And I have talked to folks who are maybe on the older side of ideas. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we don't have time for that. Like, which goes back to the shut up and dance model. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you have opinions and ideas about that. I do. I do. Yeah. So part of my research really is looking at how dance is a form of protest, which could sound like cliche and it's old idea. And I'm just adding to these ideas, these conversations that have been going on. And I'm looking at how we in the studio resist these sort of outside pressures, outside forces. So kind of looking at the art market and the art process. And okay, I've got this value. I want to be caring. How do I actually walk the walk? Because these things, like we talked about language before in academia, like these things, they get taken from real experiences. So practices of care, at least from my research and reading, is from a lot of Black feminist thinkers and writers and people of colour. And so not to sort of co-op that, you know, and then like make it something else, you know, or capitalize on it, should I say. So it's like, how do you actually, you know, like you go, oh, I'm going to do a piece about caring or my, in my process, I want to care, but how do we actually really care? And that's like really difficult because we're against capitalism. You know, you get a certain amount of money if you get the money, you get a certain amount of time, you're juggling how many different schedules. So part of my research is how do I balance the, the reality of that side of things with the reality of caring as well? I find in my own practice, when I take the time to check in, when I take the time to make sure there's enough warm up. So let's say we've got a three hour rehearsal, you know, it might take 45 minutes to check in and to ground and warm up. It could take longer, it could take an hour, it could take less. But I find if I go with the flow in terms of making sure that's really done, not just skimmed. Okay, say your name, say your pronouns, say any access you need, you know, at least in the early stages of a process or whatever. I just feel like everyone in the room is a little bit more prepared. And for myself, I find that I'm often more productive in a positive sense, you know, like I... I feel more spacious and more ready to work. And I find that I don't necessarily do less work when it comes to actually making the material. 150%. I feel like in those processes, is that a word? (laughs) I make up words. Yeah. (laughs) Is it a word? I don't know, but let's say it is. (laughs) 
I think it is. Crazy <laughs> says it's a word, so it's a word. No, no. <laughs> no, listen, I take full responsibility for all the words that I make up. I'm thinking about um, processes where we have taken what has seemed like a long time to check in, to address the sticky points that came up the day before or have been bubbling or for someone to really share yeah. what's going on with them in order for them to be present. Because I think we all know that feeling when something's going on in your life and you just have to like push it down and get on with it. Yeah. It can be so, so hard. Yeah. Whereas if the time is taken to just here, this is what's going on. Yeah. Boom. My point is that less work doesn't happen. Nah. The work is richer. It often kind of tumbles out in a much more focused way. Yeah. And I think like there's a bit of fear involved, maybe on multiple levels. Fear in the sense of one doesn't want to sort of acknowledge how they're coming in the room. Fear of running out of time. And it's also like a balancing act, you know. And this is the thing, like how do we stay in process but sort of work towards a goal? that it, it's not easy. It's not like it's an easy thing. Oh yeah, we'll just, we'll do this. And then that's it. It's not, it's always kind of changing. And some days you can go in and you can just feel it between you. Okay. It's just quick check-in today. It's fine. It's also like a feeling it together. And these are all skills that, you know, it requires risk-taking, bravery. I mean, you know, we never know what the other person's feeling or not, but there's just something about honing in on that feeling and also verbalizing as well. So it doesn't necessarily take that long for every rehearsal, but I think in the beginning, for me, it's important to do that. And I'm definitely more productive. And when I'm in the room as a dancer, I really appreciate that because it sort of gives me time to breathe especially because all of us whether we have kids or not side job gigs this or that or whatever we're all just juggling so many things you know the pandemic as hard as it was on different levels for people it showed us that we need to rest we need to take a rest and rest is productive you know as cheesy as it sounds and what is resting I mean I think that's actually a good question. It's not always doing nothing, but I think it's mm-hmm. related to being present. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's that balance of, well, we have to make the show, but how can we stay healthy while we make the show? And just the question of what is rest, my geeky practice, I bullet journal. I'm such a dork. I love it. I love bullet journaling. Just bullet point. Yeah. It's this practice where instead of buying, this is a total sidetrack, instead of buying like a day timer, it's kind of like a grid, but it's like little dots. Yeah. And you can do it any way you like. And some people make them really gorgeous and draw and everything. You can have your calendar page, but you write out everything. And in the process of writing out everything, Mm. the way I want to see it, Mm. it's so great for my brain because I'm umpa dyslexic. And so it's a way for me to harness my Mm. thoughts in a way that's not handed to me as this is how your your thoughts need to fit into this framework which I've always really struggled with yeah but I have a habit tracker page wow and I've added to my habit tracker page the rest Mm. and by doing that I've given myself and it's partly working permission Mm. to rest as if no this is part of my job 
Yeah. Is that I have to rest in order to be present with the people I'm working with and my kid and my partner and my friends. Yeah. It's quite profound. Yeah. For me, I'm so worried about money and future money, even though we have all of this work and we have maybe this sort of bit of a surplus or we we're earning money, at least money's coming in. It's really scary to sort of say no to something because, you know, there may be a period of time where we don't have the work. And so we need that kind of money or maybe, you know, we're paying our blooming taxes every month or whatever. But I think if we give ourselves the time to sort of regroup and go, okay, how can I, it's easier said than done, but we can do it, you know, like look at what is our schedule? What are our needs? What do we have to pay at the end of the month? And maybe there's one or two jobs we could say no to. You know, I was talking with someone today, a dancer. I was saying, I remember I have to not complain too much because work is coming way more easily than it ever has. And I'm really grateful. And I remember when I first graduated, there was no work. It was like, you're begging people, you know, can I do this for free? Can I do that for free? Oh, God, yeah. And now it's pendulum swing the other way where it's not just great dance projects or creative, like admin stuff, any way to make money within dance. But yeah, just starting to kind of say no. And I don't know if that's because of the pandemic. I don't know if that's because I'm older now. My body is saying no, as well as my mind. Going back to the point, I think there was a lot of fear behind it in the sense of just making sure, especially in the city again, making sure we've got enough money. But I think maybe just practicing losing that fear for a moment, seeing what happens. Absolutely. I think it's really essential because you spoke about this earlier, the speed of everything, right? And as gigging artists, you have to say yes to everything. Yeah. And what if we pause long enough to go, well, do I need to? And sometimes you do. Sometimes you just have to take it all. Yeah. And what if there's sometimes when it's, well, you know what? I could get by without that one that I really don't. Yeah. I'm not that excited about. And just even practicing that because I'm almost 50 and I'm just now I'm like, oh, I better learn how to say new. Yeah. I'm finding it very challenging and I do it and then I feel terrible and I feel like, oh, I should have written this big, long email of all the reasons why instead of just like, yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. So even when you're 25, yeah, you know, what if when you can? Yeah. Yeah. Take the rest. Take the rest. Yeah. And what is going to give you energy back? And that's life and learning too. But I feel like there's the spidey senses that you can tell. Mm, yeah. This might be paying me a bunch of money, but it's, is it going to suck out a lot of my, yeah. my energy? Well, you're talking about energy. I've been thinking about energy a lot. It's sort of part of our senses, isn't it? Like sensing our energy levels. And I realized in the early or say mid-pandemic where it was really getting gloomy yeah. you know I was just I'd got into this thinking of oh I thought I was such a feeling person because I'm a dancer but I realized that I just got to a sort of level of feeling and kind of got into a habit again so I'm just like I'm a feeling I walk around my spine oh, yeah. really long and you know I'm feeling every step I'm taking but I just kind of like got to a level of that and I realized with the pandemic, because we all felt so differently and more deeply and like, wow, I was like, oh, you know, I fell into, there's more feeling to be had. And that was when I think I started noticing energy levels. So before I think I was noticing my elbow and arm and length and, you know, spaciousness, but I wasn't noticing energy so much. 
I was just kind of getting through it. And pandemic definitely uh, made me think a lot more about energy, conserving, expanding, being rigorous with an energy that is healthy. So it's not to go flat and do nothing. No. It's just about noticing what's your, you know, we all have individual energy levels, right? And then tapping into other people's energy levels. Going back to, you know, that being in the room and sensing. Totally. I completely resonate with that. I think because we were pushing through. I mean, I never want to be as busy as I was before the pandemic, but, you know, just push through, just push through. Yeah. And with the pandemic that, oh, I'm empty. And pulling yourself by the scruff of the neck as an empty husk is not productive and useful. It's quite damaging to yourself and everyone around you. And this is new to me too. Hmm. Like, what if you leave something in your tank? Yeah. What if you don't burn yourself right down to the nub? Yeah. And because I was thinking about going back to caring and energy. And actually, I, I feel we could be... Maybe not as busy as we were, but I feel like if everyone was on the same page about these caring practices, which I know is a bit idealistic, but anyway, or more people, should I say, I feel like we could probably do the similar amount, but because we've been cared for in those nuggets of time, we might not be as drained. And of course, it's all about communication, negotiating, which is draining. But I think there's something about being in those nuggets of time and what's draining within it. I mean, it's also draining getting to those nuggets of time because usually like work is in 10 different places, but maybe do the same similar amount, but just take care of ourselves better within it. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about time management as I go into this big rehearsal and there's some young artists who are like, well, how do I take care of myself? And, you know, I start thinking about, well, like, how can you have like a micro now? How can you kind of scan your day, not for the moments to pick up your phone, but, Mm. oh, I've got 10 minutes. I'm going to go stick my legs up the wall and just breathe. Because we're not trained to do those things. And I'm very interested in the brain science of all this digital technology and what's happening to our focus. And that the drain on our energy of checking Instagram in between classes or rehearsals or after rehearsal on your way home to pick up your kid. What is that doing to you and not allowing that empty time? Yeah. And you know, it's so hard because me and a a friend, colleague, we've been talking about scheduling time, but also I'm quite a sort of pottery person anyway. Like I can't just sit down, but I've been coming off the Instagram and off the Facebook and being present with my cooking and then making myself watch TV, but good, (laughs) good TV, (laughs) maybe not even good TV, but just something where I'm just not reading, not consuming information. So, I mean, TV, I know it's kind of digital and this and that, but there is something specific about Instagram. I find as much as, as good as it is for spreading news and information as an individual, I had to take it off my phone and I noticed a massive difference in my energy because I, I used to go to it as a bit of a, what I thought was turning off and just kind of seeing what are people doing, what's going on. But actually I wasn't, I wasn't turning off whatsoever. I, it was just more images, more information. But the thing about Instagram, I guess, like if you're watching a series, it's one story, one program, but Instagram is like hundreds of stories at the rate of a second, like flick, 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 dick, watch this, that, that, you know? And yeah, so I'm actually curious to, to hear what you read. What is it doing to us? The book I'm reading right 
right now is called Stolen Focus. And it's new and it's quite incredible. And the other book is called The Shallows, which is an older book. It's kind of like pre-smartphones, but still totally relevant. Yeah, it matters what we're looking at. Like if I've got the Great British Baking Show on, (laughs) you know, painting my kids' nails, it feels like, oh, this is really nice. But if I'm scrolling and looking at, oh my God, all the shows I should go and see. Oh no. Oh God. My, oh my God. Oh no. Yeah. You know, it's just a stress machine. Yeah. We're still like working. We're still in work because, you know, most of my friends are dancers. So I'm seeing, I'm still seeing dance stuff and it's all cool and everything, but it's still work. Whereas, you know, the baking show and painting the kids' nails is kind of fun, isn't it? (laughs) It's like... I have many questions. We'll have to do another interview because I also want to respect your time as we're talking about time and focus and not having enough time. (laughs) You have time to put your legs up the wall. But I'm so interested in practice as research and in your investigation into all these things. Is there anything that's really surprised you about that? Or I'm going to have to think about this. Totally take your time. I think the one thing that has been very empowering is to realize the value of dance research and dance research being, you know, art making, art talking, art writing, and drawing sort of parallels to, you know, what we read, but realizing, oh, we're doing it anyway. And then the information that comes out of it. So in the process, you know, where I'm writing about caring and I'm trying to input caring practices and I'm, I have case studies, it feels weird calling them case studies, but artists that I'm following or that I've interviewed or whatever, and listening to their processes and listening to what dancers, choreographers, practitioners get out of the process and the things that we talk about. And then putting that into writing and then that being maybe published, but at least being read or actually going into the university. I think that's really valuable. And I think what's surprising is that I feel that we're being listened to more as artists within academia. There's a long way to go. And there's also a little bit of, again, co-opting from academia, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we'll take what they do and we'll we'll put it in here. And of course, institutions, it's, you know, crazy, political and difficult. But on a personal level, I just didn't think I was going to feel as empowered as a dancer. I had that imposter syndrome and I realized that actually what we do is really valuable and it's made me even kind of more militant in a way to pursue that and to push the edges of the university, you know, like how I'm going to write my thesis is maybe not how they want me to write it, but this is how I'm writing it. So this is it. And I can argue for why I want to write it in that way. So I don't know if that answered the question. Oh, it totally did. It totally did. It's so exciting. Uh, Just hearing you, it feels really empowering. And I'm, I'm excited about the younger artists hearing you speak and reading your research because it does open up things and validate what you talk about as the knowledge that we have. It's like massive. I'm always just struck with dancers coming into the room and how they metabolize the energy in the room, how they respond to things. Yeah. It's magic. It is. 
And it's life, it's like life skills that we need. And how can we show to the general person who maybe isn't doing it, the sort of life lessons we learn and how it can be applicable in our daily life? You know, I really believe in education. It sucks that education is still inaccessible and not on equal footing on many levels, economic, you know, access, all of this, but also just in terms of what's valued in terms of what's knowledge in there. And, you know, when I'm looking at different people like dancers going into university, even like the profs that are teaching SFU at the moment and people beginning MFAs and I'm like, yeah, you should. Yes, that's so great. I'm so glad that you're going in there. There is a division and I get it. Like a lot of arts practitioners are really wary of the institution, you know, the university and there tends to be a separation, but actually like, I feel that we need to be in there because the university is not going away and we need to be in there and being like, this is valuable. This is real. This is body. This is experience. We need to show the value of that. And of course, arts is often suppressed in funding and this and that, because it is about expression and you express too loudly, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of get shut down but that's why I'm like yeah more and more just come in come and change you know change the way that the university is is made up and it's slowly <laughs> there's I don't know if my lifetime is going to change but infiltrate yes infiltrate <laughs> that's as a form of protest absolutely yeah growing up as a university brat <laughs> I was like ooh, I'm not gonna do that ooh. I have a total bias against like well I'm a practicing artist yeah. and that just that notion that if I'm a practicing artist I do not go there I will not be accepted there or you go there when you're done and you do your MFA and then you teach that's kind of the idea it's also just not only the siloing of thought of rigor of practice of writing any sort of siloing I think you know at the root is highly problematic and I'm just realizing as you're talking oh yeah I really have that bias and like you say we do need to be in all places art needs to be in all places yeah I think so and I wonder if like some of that bias also comes from past experience because I know myself if I've gone in as a sessional or a guest choreographer or just substituting they want you to fit their model but the thing is you need to fit this model because this is how it works and so it's kind of hard to go into an institution because trying to fit their model it's just like well this isn't what I do this isn't practice this isn't what I want to share and I'm noticing I love some of the SFU profs I keep talking SFU and I know there's millions all over the world but just from my experience I'll go into a class and observe and they're not just bringing their like wealth of dance experience. They're not just teaching what I see as global technique. They're bringing in, like I mentioned already, these life skills, like preparation. How are you preparing yourself? How do you take care of yourself? How are you being rigorous? So they're bringing in really current questions that we're all talking about and thinking about and trying to implement and sharing it with the students because they're going to go out hopefully and try and be in this profession and you know we need to teach them real life skills these things that we've been talking about because a university is conveyor belt it just in money ding 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 and out I mean it's an educational place too but on the business front and so we need more arts people in there because they they just bring a different energy and a different approach to learning yeah and it also is validating as artists to be amongst the academic 
why I had to say it in that weird voice. I don't know. <laughs> um, because you see how your knowledge is valid and applicable yeah. and not just, you know. Yeah, we need to be taken seriously in every space. You know, I mean, I've had it where like, oh, you're dancing lovely and it is lovely, but it's not just, I don't, you know, when you see me on the stage or in the gallery or like you hear of this or that, it's like, uh, that's not it. <laughs> There's like so much work that's gone into that, including administration. So much admin. Yes. So to be taken more seriously. But I also wanted to say, I really want to encourage more and more people if they're interested, you know, to do MFA or PhD or BFA or whatever. Do it, do it, do it. But at the same time, I also realize there's other ways to do it as well. And actually, I'm really looking forward to post PhD. I don't want to be a full time professor. I would like to be a guest teacher from time to time, but I really want to know how can I bring my theory and practice together in a sort of professional workshop, you know? So as we know, we share many colleagues and friends that do that anyway, outside of university, you know, think about, um, is it dancing, thinking, talking bodies with Justine and Soufé? Yeah, I'll put it in the show. You know, that's doing it. That was exactly bringing embodied knowledge dance theory together into a conversation you know into a room and thinking it through and so yeah university yeah in terms of let's fight it (laughs) but but yeah there's so many different learning spaces and I think of the author Adrian Marie Brown Mm. and Emergent Strategy that book yes you know being local like just this idea of spreading knowledge and building initiatives and social justice movements at a local level. So it's not just a university, of course, there's many breeding grounds for this kind of sharing. Yeah. And it is sharing, isn't it? Yeah. Like sharing and thinking and creating those feedback loops. Okay. My last question before I let you go, Okay. clean up your children or, (laughs) or maybe take a nap. I, I wish a nap. I wish a nap for everybody listening. Yeah. I wish nothing more than a nap. What is something you have been doing lately that is feeding you as an artist, as a creative person, that you could share something that maybe our listeners or me could do? Well, I take baths and listen to podcasts, usually related to the universe. <laughs> cosmos stars planets healing lots of healing particularly in relation to what we've been talking about and I'll I'll put it under that kind of word healing in the sense of like you know how can I better improve the way I feel and also I've been finding power in being a sort of middle person and that helps me creatively because I'm someone that I feel I try to take in multiple perspectives before I form an opinion and I never thought of that as a strength because I felt like people are always on one side or the other and I have been before you know like oh you so you just sit on the fence and it's not that I don't have opinion it's just that I'm like listening to all of these points of view and that helps me Being empowered in that just, it helps me creatively because I'm not having this barrier of, oh, I'm not this kind of person and I'm not that kind of person, you know? It's like, no, I'm kind of actually multiple and I can be multiple. Accepting that I'm multiple actually opens up 
something within me. I take away those closed doors. I think that's a bit of a creative practice. I think that's genius. <laughs> I think that's genius because the whole idea, are you on this lane or are you on this lane? Yeah. As opposed to actually, I mean, the laws of nature are not hard and fast. You're a bit of this and a bit of that and your roots go down here, but they also bypass over there. And yeah, I think that's beautiful. And we are multiple. I have many theories about all the different me's that are in there and yeah, you know, bring some up to the surface sometimes when they're needed. Yeah. Of course, we're always growing. We're always folding and folding, you know, we come into some kind of order and then it goes a bit chaotic and then we reform again, which all sounds a bit theoretical actually, but it's true. It's true. It's finding the value and the strength in that. And I see it as creative in terms of allowing ourselves to do that because even in dance, you know, you might experience this, I don't know, but we are formed, we, we begin by forming ourselves, but then we're formed from the outside. It's a bit of both, but in terms of identity of who you are as an artist, audiences, presenters, producers, they start to kind of go, this is what that person does or that group does. And then what about if you want to do something different? Exactly. So I think that in the arts, we often get boxed into and we form these constraints. So practicing from ourselves and finding empowerment in the multiple and yeah, not feeling bad about ourselves for it is growth and creative. Love it. <laughs> Thank you, Daisy. Thank you. This has been so delightful. Let's do it again. Yeah, I love talking with you. I love talking with you. I'd love to. So much to think about. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much, Daisy, for taking the time to chat. I really feel like we're going to have to sit down and have a follow-up to that discussion and see how it did with the napping. I'm doing my best. It's hard to fit it in, but um, maybe even like the little snippet naps, you know, or just like close your eyes for five minutes, three times a day. I don't know. Anyway, Talking Shit with Tara Cheyenne is a project of Tara Cheyenne Performance. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, at Tara Cheyenne TCP, Facebook, Tara Cheyenne Performance, email info at tarashyan.com. Produced, edited with original music by Mark Stewart. You can get in touch with Mark at markstewartmusic.com. And to quote the writer James Clear, the more you create, the more powerful you become, the more you consume, the more powerful others become. Mm, chew on that. Take care. Be well. We'll see you next time. This podcast is effing good. <laughs>